In our last couple episodes, you've heard us talk about the One Call Summer Institute. We are excited to announce that applications are now open and will be accepted through March 15th. So to learn more about One Call, please visit our website www.onecallinstitute.org. We'd also like to say at the top of this episode that we make reference to some pictures and videos posted on our Facebook page and some blog posts posted on the One Call page. Um, anything that we refer to in today's episode and interview will have links both on our social media pages on Facebook and also on our website in the show notes at openyourhymnal.com. So be sure to check it out. Welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. Um, those of you who have been following our podcast on social media, especially on Facebook, know that this has been a busy first month of 2018, both for Zach and I. We've been working hard on our new project, the One Call Institute. And Zach, you've spent some time at the Liturgical Composers Forum just last week in St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, for our listeners who don't know, the Liturgical Composers Forum is a gathering that's been in existence for the last 20 years. Uh, John Foley had the vision of uh, starting the forum, a place where uh, the leading liturgical composers of the time could get together to discuss uh, topics and, you know, issues uh, confronting uh, liturgical composers at the time, and it has continued ever since then. I was uh, fortunate enough to join them for their 20th gathering. I had attended once before in 2012, uh, but to see uh, the growth even since then, as far as just the the number of composers, but also the, the composers representing um, a diverse landscape of cultures and musical styles and um you know the increase of women composers too uh was uh really um inspiring to see and um i was really uh fortunate to be a part of the group this year yeah and and it was fun for me uh to be able to follow from afar seeing the pictures and the videos and things uh, to notice exactly what you're talking about um new faces and familiar faces uh, more diverse faces was really wonderful. And so I'd encourage any of our listeners to check out the Open Your Hymnal Facebook page. You can see a couple of photos of the group, over 60 composers or just about 60 composers. You'll recognize a lot of our past podcast guests who were present. I hope you recognize a lot of future podcast guests who were in attendance. Um, and you'll be able to see some of the videos of the gathering. And it, uh, it looked like it was a really, really moving time. I mentioned that this was the 20th year for the forum, and so one of the special things that we did was at our, um, we, we have a banquet dinner during the forum, and we honored uh, John Foley, the forum's founder, uh, by singing a tribute, a, me a medley that Tom Kenzie led us in of some of his best-known uh, songs, and so that's a really special video, so I would, I would encourage you all to check it out. And as you're looking through the faces of the composers who were present, you will see the image of today's guest, our, our friend Gary Daigle, 
whom we interviewed back in December when we visited him and Rory Cooney in the greater Chicago area. And I'm, I'm grateful for Gary for spending the time with us both to talk about his music and his approach, but especially his participation in an important group in this second wave of liturgical composers following Vatican II called the Damians. Yeah, and one thing that I think our listeners might not know is that in addition to his own contributions to liturgical music, uh, he has also helped to shape and to form um, a lot of the music that we know of other composers uh, as the, the recording producer of a lot of the, uh, the music that has been uh, composed by some of our other uh, podcast guests and other liturgical composers. So there's certainly plenty to talk about today with Gary Daigle, so please open your hymnal to You Have Anointed Me. Hi, I'm Gary Daigle. I'm the Director of Music and Liturgy at St. Edna's Parish in Arlington Heights, Illinois. I think, if I remember correctly, Mike had sort of outlined that, that scripture passage from Isaiah and sort of wrote out and had sort of an idea that we might do this, the verses the way they were, because it was the, the passage sort of outlines itself to bring glad tidings to the lowly, to heal the broken heart. Uh, it sort of outlined the verse. So, so this, the idea was, for me, just looking at the text, I wanted to give it a, a different kind of flavor. It was the first time I'd sort of been playing with open tuning on the guitar and just came up with, again, came up with a chord progression and it just sort of fell on Daryl's ears to sort of jump at the lyric. So, so again, the process is basically chord progression, imposing a melody over the set form and then adapting the lyrics to how the process of the writing of the melodic material. The, the chord progression was simple enough. The, the, the open tuning was just more of an effect. I could have just as easily played it with regular tuning, but Daryl and I would work the melody, and as we were working the melody, sometimes Mike would just go, as it started to take shape, which shaped the lyric, fitted. We've certainly spent time in our previous conversations with composers who have collaborated and worked with others. Um, David Haas, Marty Haugen, Michael Jonkis certainly um, are, are known as a group of composers who have collaborated a lot, the St. Louis Jesuits. But what's unique about Gary and the Damians and the process that he described is here's a collection of musicians and composers actively working on crafting songs together. They're not just simply workshopping individual compositions, they're writing music together. And that, to me, as a non-composer, seems like it would be really challenging. Yeah, I think of you know groups like uh, the Collegeville composers uh, who are also doing this process of composing together. And it's 
really an extraordinary thing. It requires a lot of deference, a lot of patience, I think, probably, um, and just being open to where someone else might be leading the the creative flow. And so, um, you know, it's really interesting to hear these people talk about uh, such a process. Now, I will admit to listeners that when I was a kid, I was definitely the kind of student who like feared for group projects because I always knew I just wanted to do them myself because I knew that then it would be the way I wanted it. And so, you know, thinking about writing music or that deference, like I know that would be really tough for me and thank goodness I'm not a composer, but for you, Zach, as a composer, can, can you imagine crafting music this way or is that something that like gives you the cold sweats like it would give me <laughs> that kid in school who did not want to do group projects I, I work much better by myself <laughs> and I think you know just at least with with when I think about my process right now um, I know it would be difficult I, I think a lot of it depends of course on who you're working with I mean there probably are people out there who you know, I could very easily uh, collaborate with. And it's, um, you know, great how I think Gary and the Damians somehow like found each other and, you know, um, were able to, to create this music together. And, and I would imagine that, you know, the foundation of this relationship to make it successful has to be trust and deference, like you've mentioned. But there's got to be this unique balance of, um, somewhat being cut from the same cloth maybe when it comes to you know style or ear or taste or approach but at the same time also not all being the same flavor and gary is going to share with us a little bit um, about what that process is like in terms of crafting a sound even just in terms of chord progressions and how a group can really work together and also push each other to to be better to go further um, and really fuel that creative process. So the, the process was like this. Mike would show up with a legal pad with lyrics or ideas for lyrics, almost fully formed. And <laughs> Mike would sit the, the legal pad on the piano or on the music stand and would talk about the season or about how it would be used in, in the season so that sort of led to me sort of formulating chordal progressions and ideas on the piano that I just sort of kept playing and Daryl just after immediately sort of coming into a chord progression he just sang the melody and most of the times they were pretty close to what Mike had sort of written but once once we established the melody Everything, all the lyrics got put into that melodic structure. You will show me the path of life and guide me to joy forever. So that was the pro that was the process, along with a cassette player, and I document each session. Sometimes it'd be 15 minutes of me playing the piano. And I go back and review and go, hmm, I like that, those four bars. So that was that was basically the process. 
And it's the same kind of collaboration, but basically with one another. Another part of the process, I'm just, I'm just, I'm sitting thinking about those writing sessions. Sometimes I'd reach, get an idea, it's sort of the way that Rory described it, where, where I'd get four bars into something and I wasn't quite sure where we would go. So I'd tell Daryl, I'm going to play up to this point, sing along with what we've documented, and I'm going to stop playing and I want you to just sing where your ear tells you to go, to either finish the phrase or continue the melodic material. And it wouldn't just, it would never be just la di da 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 sort of endless stream. It would come out in phrases like a formed structure. But that's, that's how sometimes the process would work. And then I'd document that and go back again and, and would review it. As we kept going and, and as I started learning more piano, the process changed a little bit because my harmonic vocabulary became a little wider from studying in school. There were certain things, gosh, I have to think about this if I'm gonna, after I did Remember Your Love, I, I said that there were certain chord progressions we were no longer gonna use anymore. I don't know if I said it out loud, but I just told myself, since I was the one with the guitar, or the one sitting at the piano, I'm not going to write these anymore. So the days of C major 7th and F major 7th were gone, or C major 7th and D minor 7th. I no longer, those no longer would appear, or certain intervals in the melody. Once we started going that way, we said, well, we wrote that. I'm not going to use that anymore. I have to think about whether I want you guys to use that or not. <laughs> yes, and may I just add, if you do use it, add this phrase from Scripture, go ye and do likewise. <laughs> well, if you go back and listen to some of the earlier Damien stuff, and there were some great, great tunes that used those progressions, but it was just like sort of stuck in, a, in, a, um, in an era. You know, it's like if you were in the 50s, 16251 was sort of the, the, the theme of the day. And so was, so was those, those chords, those songs from Bread. Hey, have you ever tried? Those, those chord progressions were, were sort of stock during that time. But I just said, after doing Remember Your Love and doing that one chord progression, I said, never going to use it again. And I think I've stuck to that. So with the changes set forth by Vatican II, uh, one of the things we saw was uh, the dawn of the folk mass. 
And as soon as that became popular, we saw an explosion of music uh, written for this type of an ensemble. And I think at any point in time when you have a lot of composers with the same surrounding influences writing for the same kind of ensemble or for like the same purpose, um, you're going to definitely see some trends in the way that they're composing this kind of music. And, um, you know, Gary talks about wanting to kind of take the music in a new direction, adding uh, some new complexity uh, in the harmony, in the vocal writing. And even now, as uh, composers are writing now, this was something that we talked about at the forum. It's like, how do we continue uh, the growth uh, of what we're doing comp compositionally but also still kind of stay inside those tracks that, you know, some of our early pioneers uh, so skillfully crafted for us that really kind of showed us the way to creating effective uh, ritual music that is uh, both accessible and easy enough uh, to learn and sing by the assembly. Yeah, that that's really interesting to me, Zach, and, and maybe you can shed some light on this as a composer yourself. I, I would imagine that as a composer of music that you don't want to fall into the trap of the same chord progressions or the same harmonic progressions or you know one of three different sounds that are in every Zach Stahowski piece etc but at the same time being a liturgical music composer I'm sure you're also aware that there you're writing for a congregation that might respond well to certain chord progressions or a familiar familiar harmonic structure. I mean, we, we got into that a little bit with our conversation with Rory Cooney and others about folk melodies and just how accessible they are. So how do you, when you're writing something, is there, is there a way that you seek to balance that being musically interesting and complex and yet accessible? I mean, how do you begin to do that? Well, that's the great kind of challenge of liturgical music uh, composing for the ritual so that's different than sacred music so I think of composers like maybe like John Rutter uh, Lord Sin um, of course all of the you know the Viennese classical uh, music that we know but this music that we're using for the ritual it does have its constraints and while you know for some of us it would be really fun to write you know tons of counterpoint crazy um, melodies and harmonies we are kind of constrained so that we're able to still create an open door for the assembly to use and pray with these songs I think in Marty Haugen's episode I don't remember if we cut it or not but um, he makes the great analogy that writing com writing liturgical music is like building a chair it can be a beautiful chair but at the end of the day, you have to be able to sit in it. And so, you know, some of these familiar tropes, some of these harmonies, the way that we craft melodies, the way that, you know, we move in between things, uh, some of those signals are so built into what the assembly expects, you know, we can only uh, continue using some of those just because that is how the assembly has uh, learned to follow along and to participate. And I imagine that within this decision relationship here, we also can't forget that it's not just the composer 
composing something that the congregation will sing, this also has a bearing on the decisions made by the music director and the liturgist to know their congregation and what they're capable of singing or um, what might be accessible for them because, of course, not every congregation sings the same or prays the same or is able to access music in the same ways. Yeah, and of course it's not to say that there aren't innovative ways of kind of reshaping some of these tropes, some of these I don't want to say cliches, but some of these things that, you know, have come to have a common place in our repertoire. I think of composers like uh, Paul Tate, um, Tony Alonzo, Chris De Silva, Lori True, some of these people who are writing now who I, I always am interested to see how, you know, they are shaping their cadences um, because it's different than what we expect, but yet... It still serves the ritual, and it still is that, you know, beautiful chair, to use the Marty Haugen analogy again, that we can still continue to sit in. As we continue to develop one call, one of the things that we are stressing is the importance of the invitation, how we invite youth to be a part of something, how we invite them to be in our liturgies, how we invite them to attend one call. And I think for all of us uh, liturgical musicians, at some point, someone extended an invitation to us. And um, I think one call is really emphasizing the importance of what that can mean in someone's ministerial life. And for our listeners who might not be familiar, if you if you check out the One Call website or social media, you can see links there to our blog where we have a variety of different voices sharing thoughts about these very issues, inviting and encouraging young people. And Gary shared with us the story of how he was invited to become a part of the Damians. And I think it's a great example of that type of active, courageous, understanding invitation that's required when reaching out to young people. In the mid-70s when I was in high school, junior high school, Mike Balhoff, who was, who was a member of the Damians, a group of seminarians who were the, at that time diocesan priests, um, who had published and written a number of collections for the church after the Second Vatican Council, so some of their contemporaries would be Carrie Landry and Joe Wise and the St. Louis Jesuits, just to name a few people, was assigned to my parish in Gonzales, Louisiana. So he became, was assigned there and was trying to build the music ministry up and found out I was one of the local musicians and called me, called me up and asked if I'd come to this rehearsal. That sort of began my relationship with with him in terms of working together to help form a music ministry for St. Teresa Parish in Gonzales. It wasn't long after that um, that I started in my own musical growth, started kind of rearranging some of their older pieces, kind of updating and making it a little more current. That sort of led to Mike wanting to do some further collaboration since we had worked so well together, he talked to Daryl Ducote and said, we have this young musician here. I think he'd be really great to sort of do some writing. So, I mean, this is like a young kid playing, just playing. I, and I basically, I learned to play the piano when I was 
during that process. I played guitar all my since I was six years old. But I, but I started playing piano like a senior in high school, just transposing what I did from guitar to piano. As we mentioned at the top of this episode, one of Gary's significant contributions in addition to his own composition um, has been his production of a lot of recordings of liturgical music. And he's worked with dozens of composers from across the publisher spectrum and across the musical style spectrum, um, helping shape and craft the way that we hear and think about their music and their compositions. And so we're excited to bring to you the voices of some past podcast guests as they talk about their experience working with Gary. Hey, Matt. Hey, Fran. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I'm sorry I'm a little late here to the call. Oh, no problem. Here's Fran O'Brien. Well, as you know, he has the biggest ego and biggest mouth in the business. (laughs) (laughs) Are you speaking in the third person? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um, Well, the uh, the first time that uh, Gary and I worked, uh, I believe, was out in Minnesota. And we had an engineer who, um, well... He wasn't all that on the ball sometimes, and uh, we had finished a long, long day. We got all the refrains done, and then the guy says to Gary, well, what about the next refrain? And he said, Gary said, well, there is no next refrain. And uh, the uh, engineer said, well, we still have this slot here for one. So the guy had put the verse, the, the, the uh, refrains on the wrong places. Everyone was a little perturbed, except for Gary. And that's the way Gary is. Gary will work with whatever is happening and make it work. Um, He is so uh, calm and uh, so focused. He is laser focused when he's when he's doing a piece. And that's the um, probably the 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 thing that uh, brings everything together uh, so nicely is that Gary, while being laser focused, is also listening to the composer's uh, ideas and the ideas of um, the, uh, the singers and, and the instrumentalists. And there are always suggestions. There are always uh, kind of gentle, well, what, what about doing it this way or that way? Uh, he's so open and so collaborative, uh, yet so in charge. Uh, and that's a rare, rare thing that um, his ego has absolutely, it's, it's out there somewhere on the street. He never brings it into the, uh, into the studio. And he does it in such a low-key way that you sometimes overlook the fact that he is a master at what he does, uh, the way he coaxes a performance out of someone, the way he knows to maybe push someone or maybe to pull back on someone. In my, my, fir- the, my first experience was with a producer who was very demonstrative. Uh, and you know, every time we took a take, it was like the best take in the world, and that's the best song in the world. Uh, that does a lot to ease your... Uh, uh, you know, easier going into it, but it's but uh, Gary's he'll look at a take and say, That's good, and that's you know, it's good because he's 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 given you two words, he's kind of like the Bill Belichick of um, of uh, directors, only only he has full length sleeves, 
He has full ice sleeves. He does <laughs> smile, and he's not smarmy. That's right. I always got the feeling that whatever song you put in front of him, you know, regardless of what he might feel about it, he would he would record it and put it together, um, you know, as if it were were the best song that that, that has come down the pike in a long time. Um, just his his uh, his focus again on, on making a good good product. Hey, Kate, how you doing? And now, here's Kate Cuddy. He is a musician and a producer and a teacher kind of all in one. As a producer, he, he knows about windows of sound. So um, instead of filling the tape or the now digital um, recording from t wall to wall, he leaves places where the music can breathe. It's easy because Gary has every musician's respect. And so you know that he's not going to create a totally different song, but you have to be savvy enough to go, it might indeed have a different feel. Uh, and maybe even one that, that I had no particular experience with. And certainly if I had been performing it, I would have been intimidated, but to watch him create it um, was an honor. It wasn't terribly scary or hard to let go. And I think that's true when you have mentors who simply have more talent and experience than you. Um, he took my On That Day, um, which I had done, as I would call it, a um, sort of a jazzy rendition, jazz to blues. But he heard the blues piece of it. And as he told me, he, um, he drug it through a little Mississippi mud. Brother. How are you? You know, I'm okay. Here are some thoughts from Tony Alonzo. So in around 2002, uh, my friend Mike Mahler and I decided to create a collection of music that was kind of a bridge between liturgical and more performance-oriented music. And we decided we'd do it just the two of us. We'd just go into the studio, piano and guitar. And after uh, doing it a few times, uh, kind of meeting, we realized we had no idea what we were doing and we needed help. And Michael said, we need to call Gary Daigle. And what stands out for me about working with Gary is his deep ability to listen. So many musicians are really good at the, the making music, kind of the contributing to the conversation, the musical conversation, as it were, by their playing. And what Gary brings to the process is his own ability to listen deeply to what's happening and only to add in musically to that conversation when it's needed. And then he teaches others to do the same. So I've seen him at conferences where he's been invited to play the synth. And I've seen him sit for multiple songs and not play a single note because there's no space in the texture for his instrument. And he only plays when it's necessary. And he taught me that skill um, on the piano 
And he also taught me that improvising, um, studio playing, is not just kind of sitting down at the piano and doing whatever comes to your mind, but deeply listening to everything that's happening around you and thinking, am I needed? And if I am, what kind of musical remark am I gonna make in this piece? And that has stayed with me um, my entire uh, musical career, especially in the studio where you have so many talented musicians and you don't wanna add anything unless it's absolutely necessary. Hi, Matt. Hey, Marty. How you doing? Good. Good. A good producer is like a good sound person in the sense that um, you don't notice their presence. Um, they disappear into the, the sound of whatever the artist, their music, and their ideal of what it should sound like. And so... Uh, when he produced, for instance, Donna Pena, you hear an album that would sound much like what Donna would want it to sound like. And when he worked with Liam Lawton, you heard an album that sounded like uh, a Celtic group. Um, but you don't hear, and with Rory, of course, and, and with me, you don't hear Gary uh, because he is a good, such a good producer. He's able to intuit what the person wants and give them that. Gary, I'm, I'm sure, would give a lot of credit to the Damians and how they shaped him, because uh, one of the things about um, the Damians is that they they always they've been heroes for me for a long time in terms of of helping um, create a sense of here's here's what liturgical music should sound like. But the, they didn't, you know, their recordings were all very. Um, designed to be functional, not not showy or flashy. And I think they influenced Gary a lot. So I think he learned a lot of it from them. And uh, yeah, this ministry, it's interesting because ministry, whether it's writing music or, uh, or serving in a parish, it's always a collaborative thing. It's never something that, you know, it's not like there are superstars who change the whole nature of things uh, like the Beatles changed pop music. I think they, we all work with each other and learn from each other, not just other composers, but other musicians. So it's, so Gary was certainly, and part of what Gary, his gift was because he, he worked so well with so many people, he brought all that kind of knowledge and broad understanding to what he did. And now, Here's a recording of You Have Anointed Me in its entirety. The word of God came to me thus. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. A prophet to the nations, I appointed you. Ah, my God, I said, 
I know not how to speak. I am too young. But God answered me, Say not I am too young. To whomever I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Have no fear before them, because I am with you to deliver you. my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit.
Thank you for listening to the Open Your Hymnal podcast. You Have Anointed Me is distributed by GIA Publications. The recording you heard was released by GIA Publications on the album The Best of the Damians, Volume 2. Links to this material and other resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. We'd like to specially thank Gary Daigle for this interview. Production assistance and support was provided by GIA Publications, Natalie Spear, and by Stephen Petronak and the National Association of Pastoral Musicians. You can find important digital resources for music ministry at NPM's website, www.npm.org. If you aren't a member yet, sign up today. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and through Google Play. Our next episode will feature an interview with composer Alan Hummerding and his hymn text, From Ashes to the Living Font. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening. <laughs>